this week on the Back Table Podcast. Sexual health does not need to continue to be in the closet. It doesn't need to be in the shadows. Let's just be forthright about one's sexual health. Understand that it has impact on one's entire sense of well-being. It's connected to health conditions and there are many ways uh, of having your sexual health impacted. But let's uh, not be ignorant about any of this. Let's, let's bring it out in the open. Let's be informed and let's address the problems and let's make your life better. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Hey, Jose Silva is your host this week, and I'm happy to introduce our guest, uh, Dr. Arthur Burnett. Dr. Burnett did his medical training at John Hopkins University, then stayed there for his urology residency. Uh, he is currently a professor of urology at John Hopkins School of Medicine. He is the Patrick Walsh professor of urology. He's a clinician, scientist, and also the James Buchanan Brady Urology Institute and director of the Basic Science Laboratory in Urology at John Hopkins School of Medicine. And this is just a very, very brief uh, summary of Dr. Burnett's uh, achievements and history. So welcome to Backtable. Well, thank you very much, and I'm delighted to be with Jose. So, Bud, today we're going to talk about sexual health. So I was reading, and we're going to talk about this uh, later in the episode, your book, but reading the first chapter of your book, I read something that interests me. So uh, you were in the original studies of nitric oxide, right? Well, that's true. Yeah, I was involved with original science. So how did that happen? Well, you know, the interesting thing is that back in my early years here at Johns Hopkins, in my residency training as a urologist, I had the opportunity to do a research lab year. And after some initial few years clinically, I realized that we just did not know enough about sexual health and how to address uh, erection disorders in men. It was something that I was very intrigued to go about a scientific investigation with uh, in this area. With the research laboratory and with collaborators, we were able to define the mechanism of chemical induction of the erection response. And uh, it was a scientific journey, an exciting project. Uh, that involved uh, research work on mice and rats, but uh, we then quickly showed that it did work on the human level as well, and this was the foundation for how we were able to uh, develop new drugs for erectile dysfunction, such as Viagra. That's great. So at that time, you were a resident. That is true. I was a resident and kind of wet behind the ears, uh, but nonetheless had some interesting uh, and intriguing scientific pursuits ahead. And but. When you went into urology, you knew that you were wanted to do research as, as well? Well, I did. You know, I think one of the things about being in the environment of Johns Hopkins is that it's an institution that uh, really cultivates discovery. But it promotes uh, the, the idea that we're not just practicing medicine, but we're discovering medicine. And uh, with that background and with opportunities to engage in, in research work, uh, I knew early on that uh, I was going to be able to carry out a career even as a surgeon scientist, more than just a surgeon alone. And I uh, started early in my career, even as a resident. And you will continue on that journey as well, right? Well, I have. And, and uh, just to mention it, I, I have been here at Johns Hopkins more than 35 years. Uh, and uh, during my early career, I was able to start to build a research laboratory. And I had maintained that for pretty much my entire career uh, at this institution. 
That's great. That's great. So, so let's dive into sexual health. And definitely, I mean, you are a mainstay in this topic. So let's talk about optimal sexual health. Uh, what does that mean? Well, optimal sexual health is uh, really a hot button kind of conversation, but I think it's, it's timely. Uh, anything that had to do with sexual activity and sexual function in the past, as you know, were taboo subjects. You no, know, I kind of wanted to talk about it in polite company, but everybody wanted to know about it. <laughs> and so, you know, certainly in the, in the medical field, we recognize that yeah, there is something to sexual medicine, sexual health, and sexual rights. Those of us in the special area believe that uh, it's a right to, of all individuals to have the fullest of their uh, life experiences, their full physical and mental and spiritual health. And being able to perform sexually and be sexual is part of all of that. And so with all that being recognized, uh, we have certainly, myself and other specialists in this field, have, have developed this field, recognizing how important it is. And we also understand that it's linked to one's mental health and physical health in so many different ways in terms of the various disease states and conditions. So being optimized with one's sexual health optimizes your mental and your physical health as well. And definitely, and sometimes, I mean, you, you, you know that insurance, they don't think like that and they don't want to go into that aspect. And most of the time, they don't want to cover treatment for, for sexual dysfunction that, like you mentioned, is very important for just the, the well-being of, of one and the mental aspect of it. When should we start t thinking about sexual health? Well, I think sexual health is uh, associated with one's general health. And as uh, we come into being aware of our own bodies, perhaps in our young adult lives, uh, maybe even sometime sooner, uh, we should just be aware of our, our overall sexual health as well. So I think awareness should begin then. As we move along in life, I think we do make associations very clinically uh, with health issues such as cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and other sorts of health conditions, not to mention mental health conditions. And so you can see how this is linked. And so understanding one's sexual health, I think, is really tantamount to understanding one's overall health. Yes, definitely. I think, I mean, I'm sure you agree that most of the time, also as urologists uh, are just treating because or you're trying to treat it instead of talking about prevention. Uh, so that's why I asked, when should we start talking about sexual health? And, and for example, I mean, you, you probably see them, uh, these young patients that are diabetic, that they never took care of their diabetes, and now you see them because of sexual dysfunction. So that's why I asked. Well, I think you're spot on. And I mean, I would just echo your, your point that you know, we realize that to optimize one's sexual health is not just a matter of reacting to the condition once it arises, but to realize that we all can take some responsibility uh, in maintaining our best health and even taking a preventative approach, understanding various conditions that are linked uh, with one's sexual health. So, indeed, I couldn't be a stronger advocate uh, than you are, almost, than to say that we should recognize this, this association. And in terms of prevention, I mean, are there things that we can do uh, to prevent or, or to try to maintain sexual health? Well, absolutely. Yeah, you know, they, there are various activities, lifestyle adjustments or modifications, maybe a way to talk about it, that can range from maintaining good health with diet, exercise, avoiding adverse health conditions such as cigarette smoking and other environmental exposures that potentially one could be exposed to that can affect uh, one's uh, good health. 
So that Im- implies then that uh, individuals themselves can take some responsibility to uh, either take a preventative approach by a good lifestyle throughout lifetime, but even as they move forward with other health conditions and present to any of us uh, specialists in the field, where we may have treatments to offer, but we always talk about how a patient can also adjust how they go about their living, some lifestyle modifications that should be part of the prescription plan. Exactly. So you mentioned that uh, diet, you mentioned exercise, you mentioned the, the good lifestyle and, and, and just good choices. And I guess we sometimes fail, or, or as society, we, we think that there's going to be a, an easy way to it or, or, or the medical pill to restore health rather than since you're young, doing the diet, doing the exercise. And that's why I asked also, when should we start talking about sexual health? Because this is something that starts when you're a kid. All the good habits, diet, exercise, and it might be a little controversial to talk about sexual health when you're a kid, but definitely at least talking about the good part of the diet and, and, and the lifestyles and all that, we, we can definitely start with that. Oh, I, I would agree 100%. Certainly, I wouldn't talk about sexual health to a child, but just getting them on the right track uh, with regard to a better diet, that they should get physical exercise, that they should recognize that certain uh, foods may not be as healthy as they could be, a lot of fast foods and greasy foods and things like that. And I think we can impart to our children and, and our younger members of society to you know, take charge of your health early. And that'll overall then improve your, your mental and your physical health. And then as they come of age, they'll understand that that also is linked with the functional as they can be sexually. And you mentioned the diet. For example, I still have a patient with kidney stones. And, you know, we know that it's related to diet, but the patient always said, well, my lifestyle, uh, I'm busy working or I don't have time to take care of myself. What do you say to those patients? Well, I, I would have to say to those patients that uh, we all have busy lifestyles. You know, I'm sympathetic uh, with regard to life demands, but at the same time, as I discuss with my own patients and, and I try to abide by these rules of life myself, we just find some time to make adjustments in life, be conscious about your good health lifestyle and develop some good lifestyle habits. And that may involve some exercise, even if it's just two or three days a week for 20 or 30 minutes. And then just on a daily basis, recognize better healthful foods. So just making small adjustments uh, certainly may have some good outcome benefits. So l- let's go in, in talking about uh, erectile dysfunction now. What are the classic treatments out there for erectile dysfunction? Well, erectile dysfunction, uh, which refers to the inability to achieve a penile erection, that's useful for sexual activity. By way of definition, we have a range of treatments that have really come about now in recent years. We can get into these different options, uh, but fundamentally, we talked about how just, you know, again, taking charge of one's life and making adjustments may be a big factor. But we, we go about trying to understand what may be factors in a person's having challenges with erection ability. They can be a matter of performance anxiety. It could be other stressors. It could be other mental health issues, but it can also be physical health issues. So understanding what factors involved in taking action to be corrective with all of those is, is first-line uh, intervention. Beyond that, as you're saying, we do have therapies, and, and perhaps the most prominent among these are the oral drugs uh, that have become available, uh, effective oral drugs that have been available now in the past 25 years. And so denophil is one, tadalafil is another, or denophil and abanophil. Now, all of these fill drugs, they have their trade names. 
but these are oral erectile dysfunction medications that largely are available to all patients to try with exceptions, with exceptions, but still maybe at least first-line management for the majority of patients. Yeah, I guess now that some of them, uh, you mentioned sildenafil and talafil are generic, I think it's more accessible to patients and, and, and we can definitely try to use those first. And some people, I was going to ask you regarding, for you mentioned that patient that has some stressors, let's say a, a young patient that has stressors and, and have one episode of erectile dysfunction and they, they, they come to the office, they're panic. They don't want to have that happen again. Do you start them on, on some medications? Well, you know, it's an interesting uh, way of managing patients. You know, the patient who may be a young patient with age saying very clearly has some physical uh, uh, health conditions that are fairly stable and not predictably in, in play as an older, maybe cardiovascular illness. And so you, you can almost back into a conclusion that maybe there is some sort of mental health aspect to that. That's how we can almost derive a, that determination. But how do we manage it? I think it's a matter of having a conversation with that patient. Yes, addressing maybe some of the stressors makes sense. And we use the oral agents, like uh, what we talked about, sildenafil or the others. Absolutely, they can be used with this while coaching the patient to understand what may be factors, but maybe that's a little bit of a kind of a boost, if you will to allow them to be able to perform and then perhaps over time find that they may not require that to be functional. Yeah, so most of the time they come to the office, they're, they're panicking. Uh, they don't want to, I guess, don't show up to the party when, when it comes to that. So most of the time they, they, they come looking for, I wouldn't say an answer, or sometimes they want an answer to see why, but they want a solution. And probably I find myself, hey, take some Tadalafil or Sildenafil and just take it. And then until you feel more confident, then just stop using and see if you need it. Yeah. And I guess some any young guys particularly, and maybe some older guys who just need that confidence. Uh, fortunately, these are very safe drugs. The only contraindication is nitrates for major cardiovascular health issues. So certainly I want the audience to know that. But uh, these drugs, I think, have been well demonstrated to be safe. Uh, and if they enable some patient, an individual, to have uh, erections, to develop a level of confidence and then move forward, I'm supportive of that. And then if the patient doesn't improve, then you have the, the intracarbidoso injections or the IPPs? Sure. Yeah, there's a range of additional options. And, you know, we talked about first line being the oral agents just because they get clearly they have the simplest form of therapy in terms of ease of administration and simple use. At the same time, we realize that uh, they may work on average about 70% of oral patients, which is what we think we've studied in the, in the scientific field, and that it may not work for everybody. And so for those patients who it's not working for, well, a patient may have found he used it for a few years, but then it's becoming less uh, responsive to that. And that may have to do with just some other health conditions evolving, and he just needs something that's going to be a little more effective. So we have other alternatives. You mentioned the intracarbonosal therapies that's this is a therapy of delivering medication directly to the penis by way of injecting drugs that uh, almost like a liquid form of sildenafil that induces an erection effect. So that is one option, and you do that on demand with teaching to know how to do that with a tiny diabetic needle and syringe, and that induces an erection that resembles a natural erection by way of chemical drug effects, but then the erection should go up and go down within an hour, during which time sexual activity conceivably could occur. So that is one option. The other option that's uh, very common is what we call vacuum erection device therapy. 
And so this is an alternative treatment, also on demand, meaning that the patient has to use it each time that he would want to engage in sexual activity by way of producing an erection. And this is, uh, involves an external cylinder brought over the penis, creating kind of a, a chamber, a vacuum chamber with a vacuum effect by way the way the device works. And that draws blood up into the penis, creating an erection-like state. And then a constriction band is released from the base of the, the apparatus to the base of the penis, whereby the apparatus then is removed. And that constriction band then is secured at the base of the penis, holding that blood engorgement. And therefore, with that erection-like state, a person can move forward with sexual activity uh, and then see how that goes. Then when done, the restricted band is pulled off. So I think you see how that goes as an option. Both of these, both of these options uh, are very effective uh, and they are reversible to the extent that you're not doing something where uh, you've changed the penis in a way that you can't switch over to something else. So I always make sure patients have that understanding on while each of these are a little bit more intrusive and tedious than taking a pill, there are options that don't burn any bridges. And so these are options that are commonly available with good success that are non-surgical. So you mentioned the constriction ring. Is there, for example, patients that have premature ejaculation or that they're having self-erections? Constriction ring on its own, do you recommend it? Well, constrictive ring uh, can be used in various scenarios, if you will. For premature ejaculation, we may have some other primary treatments to offer for that particular condition. But the constrictive ring offers one way of holding the erection longer if you actually have had an ejaculatory response and some of the chemical factors of how the erections are induced to decline start to come into play after an ejaculation, you may be able to retain that erection somewhat longer. So that is an option. It's a little bit more circumventional, but we do have other strategies as well for premature ejaculation management. Okay, so so you wouldn't recommend it as a first line? Well, I, I think it is first line to the extent that if a patient feels that they want to explore an option that may be fairly simple, it's there. And the other options for premature ejaculation in sexual medicine circles are medications, uh, as well as behavioral modification in the bedroom and how you go about sexual activity. Both of these may have their pros and cons, you know, medications work towards the, the real chemical basis for how premature ejaculations occur and, and controls the ejaculatory effect, but these medications have to be used with timing and they may have some side effects for the way of adjusting the premature ejaculation with various forms of sexual behaviors in the bedroom. Uh, many times that is, is uh, alternative to be a bit more natural, but at the same time, maybe a bit more tedious and that may require a partner that you have to work with and work towards how you go about sexual activity. And there's various strategies there as well. But again, you can see how for some that might be challenging as well. So it depends on how the patient wants to move forward. And each of these may be options that can be considered based on the preferences of the patient and the patient's partner, maybe. And in terms of side effects from the vacuum device or the constriction ring, are there any? Well, side effects uh, can be as, as simple as just the challenge of putting a constriction band on the penis that can be uncomfortable, can potentially cause some bruising and, and kind of a pulling effect from the tightness or the tethering effect of the constrictive ring. Also, during sexual activity, uh, there's no circulation even in the, in the superficial areas of the penis. The penis can become somewhat cold uh, and maybe even change its sensation a little bit from having that constrictive ring there. And then it also may pivot a little bit 
or the constrictive ringlet. So it's not a natural erection throughout the whole shaft of the penis, and it may pivot on that band. So all of these may be undesirable features of having the constrictive ring. Nothing, I think here with these adverse effects are, are truly tragic or, or that severe, but then they may be adverse with regard to one's sexual activity. And in terms of other treatments for, for erectile dysfunction, uh, I have heard chug wave, stem cells, where are they at right now? I appreciate you bringing that up because there's a lot of enthusiasm out there, a lot of uh, advertisements, a lot of discussion on various ways from the back of men's magazines to various projections on, on social media and here and there about what these other things are. And it's always good for your audience to want to know the truth about these options. Uh, the truth is that these are options that are still fairly undeveloped just yet. Uh, they may have promise, uh, but I think we need to study them better in our sexual medicine research to establish how effective they can be. I know they're being used with various clinics out there, but I just let the audience know here that it may not necessarily work in all men. There may be men with more severe forms of erectile dysfunction or may have other health issues that may not likely lead to the success of these therapies. And until we define them a little bit better, who would best, most likely succeed with these therapies? I think patients just need to know that they're still in early investigational phases of use. So uh, just be aware that one should not just uh, sign up and spend a lot of money uh, with uncertain benefit of these therapies just yet. So uh, any other treatment for erectile dysfunction coming out or basically that that's what, what is out there? Well, I think what we just talked about is out there, you know, again, the shock waves and platelet-rich plasma, these sort of things I think are investigational. Uh, if they've been done in, in clinics that are offering this without expense or with clinical trials, I think that's fair enough. But what the future may bring is once we define these better and then with guidelines to help understand what kind of erectile dysfunction presentations may be best for certain men, that will guide us. In the future, we may develop better therapies, uh, but nothing imminently that I'm aware of that is going to come out here in the next couple of years just yet. In the previous episode, we had Dr. Valderrabano. We discussed prostate cancer and, and, and testosterone replacement on prostate cancer survivors. You're part of that study. So can you talk about some of the background or what you found and where is it heading? Yes, this is an area that's very important. The whole idea here of sexual dysfunction in men who have prostate cancer. The connection between these two health issues is real. Managing prostate cancer for some men can result in having erectile dysfunction. It can result in having changes in one's sexual drive or libido. It may alter one's orgasmic effects and ejaculatory function. So you can see how the various treatments, be it surgery, be it radiation, be it even anti-androgen or, or hormone-blocking therapies that have been used and in conjunction many times with radiation can have all these adverse effects on sexual health. So we understand the link, but then moving forward, once a man has been treated for his prostate cancer and looks as though he will have overcome the disease, may be healthy for the long term, uh, we don't want a man to endure many years of life ahead being dysfunctional with regard to his sexual activity and abilities. And so we try to identify what exactly is the nature of the, of the sexual health issue. And I mentioned a couple different kinds of conditions that could arise with regard to one's uh, health in this regard. We need to address this. Many men may have uh, prostate cancer cured and live for another 20, 30 years. We can't have that man continue to be devoid of any kind of ability to keep that part of his life. And so we were very committed to those men. 
Uh, we're trying to evaluate how we can improve upon this. One of the things that has been considered here is the role of testosterone, male hormones that may help one's sex drive, sex libido, may have some partial impact on erections. Uh, is that a safe thing to offer in men who've had prostate cancer, even if it's been well-treated and, and conceivably cured? Now, there has been kind of the, the long-term uh, understanding out there, almost dogma is the word means, where anybody who's had prostate cancer should never be exposed to, to testosterone therapy for fear that it may stimulate prostate cancer recurrences or, or advanced prostate cancer. And the background for that has to do with the fact that indeed, for men with advanced prostate cancer, we do use the hormone blockers to help treat the disease. So it almost is an inference that, you know, why are you going to give therapy that's that's going to be possibly influential in progressing cancer? But we've learned over time here that we can still safely administer testosterone to men as long as we have confirmed that their prostate cancer is well-controlled. And now we're moving forward with good clinical trials to help establish this in a way that uh, we believe that the medical community will accept. And so we're in the midst of trials looking at potential benefit of testosterone therapy uh, in men who've had prostate cancer treatments. And we hope to see that it will have a beneficial role and by guidelines, we may be able to direct uh, therapy of this sort and men uh, selectively we could benefit from it. Yeah, and I have seen patients that they undergo radical prostatectomy, they get an IPP for erectile dysfunction, and the IPP is working, it's just that the patient doesn't have any desire. So they come to the office, they say, hey, doctor, this is just for show, I mean, it's just there, they don't want to use it, and then you, you do the testosterone, is in the, in the hundreds, and that's the problem, nobody wants to take the, that step and, hey, let's just start you in testosterone replacement. And those patients that have low PSA, PSA that is negligible, they definitely, after a couple of weeks, you start doing those tests on, they, they, they're grateful, completely changes their life. Well, you're spot on. And, and the truth of the matter is, is that many men could benefit from testosterone therapy, particularly with regard to having a low sex drive or having impaired sexual libido is the word we use. And, and so I think it is a, an option that many of us in especially have used over the years, but it's kind of been... You know, with kind of the understanding by much of the medical community that it's unsafe. And so we're, we're in the midst now of doing studies where we can show that properly administered testosterone therapy can address this problem for these patients. And we can define this better and hopefully bring forward therapy that will meet clinical guidelines that will be accepted for treating these men. And I understand, I'm talking with Rodrigo about this, one of the uh, research that is going on is using gels, right? Well, there are different forms of testosterone therapy. We also use the word testosterone replacement therapy. Uh, but uh, there's various forms of treatment. And gels is one where you apply just on the surface area of the body in different locations that have a, kind of a testosterone product that gets absorbed. Uh, there are other options as well. They have the pros and cons uh, in terms of with preferences for how they're administered, preferences for how they'll be effective and concerned about uh, how they're tolerated and other safety issues that, that may come into play. So gels is one, the injectables is another, long-term pellets is another, and uh, even more recently, we're, we're evolving some possible new oral testosterone replacement therapies, which historically have been problematic because of the concern of possible liver toxicity. But the newer ones 
designed with understanding how the drugs can be metabolized, may be safer, and may offer some new options in all the single. And buddy, your practice for those patients that have prostate cancer, are you treating them with testosterone? Well, I, I have over the years. I've been active as a prostate cancer surgeon and also involved in sexual medicine. Uh, I've had patients that have come to me exactly as you described. You know, doctor, I'm doing great. I've recovered my urinary control. I'm physically fine, but I just don't have any sexual interest. We, we check their testosterone, and we do know some men over time, their testosterone can, can decline somewhat. And so I've discussed it with patients that, that we can start therapy. You know, historically, I've, I've really been very strict about it. Men should have a completely undetectable PSA. Uh, they should be at least a good amount of time post-surgery, at least a year, at least a year, but maybe even two years later, showing that the PSA is not changing, that we very clearly confirm that their testosterone level is low, so we're treating it appropriately, and then we're evaluating patients who start on therapy to see if they're cool with regard to their sexual interests and their sexual libido, and then monitor their PSA as well as their testosterone level. So this kind of rigor should be there if the man wants to pursue this therapy. The physician, yeah, he's managing you needs to adhere to this kind of rigor. And but let me ask you this. I mean, testosterone doesn't create cancer, right? But, but, but it can feel it. So why, I mean, you mentioned the, the year or two years. I mean, it, if it's going to recur at some point, it's going to come back, right? At some point. Why had that patient struggle with low testosterone for a couple of years? I mean, I guess that, that's a question, right? When is a good time to start the treatment? Well, you know, you certainly raise a good uh, side of the debate on this. You know, the others may counter by saying, if it's destined to return, no need to try and accelerate that. No need to, to lead to the cancer progression and possibly have adverse effects faster than it may uh, otherwise have occurred. But I think your point is well taken. Uh, we believe testosterone treatment done in a way that meets just normal testosterone levels is basically physiologic. It's normal and healthy. And so... Uh, can we argue that patients should not have normal testosterone levels when men have that normal testosterone levels all their life? So I'm kind of in your camp that we can move forward and you know wisely administer therapy. Now, if somebody has active prostate cancer and is progressing, then I think that there may be a little concern that you're going to put, as they say, you know, fuel on the fire. But indeed, the basic consideration is prostate cancer can develop irrespective of testosterone being there. Uh, and we know the testosterone treatment does not really induce prostate cancer. It may help its progression, but that distinction is clear. It doesn't induce prostate cancer. I think the first patient that I treated that had prostate cancer, he begged me for treatment. Doctor, I have gone to many urologists. I have read a lot. I'm going to take all the risk. And we started, and, and, and he's extremely happy. And that's how, oh, if I can make a change with this patient, then why not others? And that's how I started treating other patients, cancer prostate survivors, but they, they understand the risk. Well, they have to understand the risk. And I think that your point is extremely well taken. That patients, I think, could benefit from it, but I think they need to be counseled. They need to understand what potential risks there are. Unfortunately, we're in a society uh, that's somewhat litigious at times. And if something adverse goes on, you know, next thing you know, you see things on the radio waves where the lawyer say, go see your doctor. And so... I think a lot of doctors have been apprehensive about uh, any potential risks, but we may be actually causing harm to our patients by not really keeping them as physiologically healthy as they could be. So th that's why we're doing these trials, because I think we do these well and show how we're 
characterizing what kinds of patients can be on therapy safely, then I think we may be able to bring the field forward and give some comfort to physicians out there to provide this therapy. It goes back to what we talked at the beginning about optimal sexual health. If we're not providing that, then we're causing mental issues, physical issues. But to your point, I mean, that, that, that's what we need to do. Definitely have the data. And so we, we are more comfortable talking to the patients. I wanted to ask you something about testosterone in terms of, for example, I mean, for patients that have prostate cancer, I don't recommend pellets just because the amount of time it takes for that pellet to get dissolved. If the PSA starts increasing, I use short acting and, and then I, I use a uh, low dose of injections versus the gels, but just small doses and we go from there. In your opinion, I mean, do you think at some point we might get to have longer acting testosterone in these patients? Well, I think it may well be. I mean, the point that you're making is very astute uh, that if we give a person a long-acting form of testosterone therapy and their PSA starts to change in the setting of prior prostate cancer management where we expect the PSA to truly stay at an undetectable range and never change. If it starts to change again, that gives us a concern that prostate cancer is progressing and something's going on with prostate cancer tissue in the body, cells somewhere even if they've been effectively treated by having the prostate removed. Prostate cancer cells may have actually spread in the body and laid dormant for years, and now we're finding out that their PSA is changing, and that's kind of a conclusion that we'd have to make. So I think you're absolutely right. If you give somebody a long-acting form of testosterone, how do you stop it or reverse it? The therapy's having an impact over, let's say, six months or more. I think that, at least for now, uh, the more short-acting therapies, such as the gels, may be a little smarter. For any physicians in the audience here thinking about therapy, that may make sense. But I think the other point that you're making, then I'll take a step further, is, is if we define uh, who can safely be on this therapy and show that there really is not likely to be any prostate cancer occurrence by meeting certain definitions of safety, then who knows? We may actually then identify which patients may feel comfortable saying the odds that you even have a likely recurrence is so low that if that man has a preference for getting pellets, which is a way of getting these, uh, you know, implantable pellets, as it will, beneath the, the skin area and different parts of the body that can release testosterone over many months and prefers to do that than daily treatments and things of that sort with all the tedious nature of all that, then we may be able to define this enough to, to help know which patients we can safely do that. So we mentioned erectile dysfunction. We briefly mentioned uh, premature ejaculation. We mentioned low testosterone. Let's talk a little bit about peperonis. Let's start with the first question that the patient will ask is, why? <laughs> well, you know why what? it happened? <laughs> well, you know what? Uh, again, another one of these taboo subjects uh, that we're getting increasing notice about. There's TV ads out there showing the, the bent carrot. And I don't know how many people want to keep eating bent carrots, but when you see that up there, maybe it does, it does kind of make an immediate uh, association that uh, the one's... Uh, penis is deformed. But, you know, this is a common thing. We see in about one in 10 men getting in their 50s and 60s commonly, just that the penis changes, that it gets misshapen, it gets maybe shortened in some respects, getting an erection kind of kind of angles off in one direction or another, uh, and there's various kinds of looks to the penis. It's almost just by wear and tear in just life situations. It's like some people get changes with, you know, a bent back or arthritic hip or knee. This happens in, in some men as they get older now, and it can be as much as one in 10 men. And so this is a benign thing. It's almost like an arthritis of the penis. 
and we call it Pyronic disease, but it can be really very devastating to many men. You know, why me? Why did this happen? I mean, I'm just living my life. Uh, and my penis now is curved in such a way I cannot perform sexually and it's very uh, psychologically tormenting. So all of this kind of discussion kind of surrounds this condition. And so, uh, when I have conversations with my patients, I, I reassure them that it's not a trivial subject that we understand it's a meaningful thing to address. And we go about talking about ways to try and address the problem. So you mentioned the, the psychological part to it. Let's say somebody has a, a little bit of a bend and he's functional, but it's just, a, well, it looks weird. I mean, in that patient, do you offer a treatment? I mean, because sometimes you, you're just making them functional. At least that's what I understand from Peronis. You're trying to make them functional, uh, but they want to look perfect. Well, you know, like many things we address in our clinical offices, we have a discussion with the patient to understand their goals. We understand really what they're trying to achieve. And with uh, various kinds of therapies we bring, they're going to have their, their good and, and bad sides of it. But to try to put this in, in perspective, you know, my overall recommendation to patients is, is that uh, we should do the least harm to them while trying to achieve what will allow them to be functional uh, and have satisfactory sexual relations. If that's a matter here of addressing curvature to get the penis straight enough for the course, if it's a matter of a functional problem where the penis is not firm enough, how can we make that better? The goals that may be some are uh, more extensive than that, if you will, you know, a perfect penis and so forth might be tall orders. And to achieve that sort of thing, we don't really have great uh, simple therapies, no medications that simply can make your penis longer or, or look better. If there's some surgical interventions, I'd have to present to that patient that there may be some risks about some of these cosmetic surgeries that may also lead to further changes in the penis or even sensation changes as well, changes in the physical appearance as well as sensation changes. So I would have to inform that patient that, uh, what, you know, what is his goals and, and really what are the goals that I typically try to direct patients to think about? What will allow you to be functional? And, and really, if, if we can at least get you to a mostly straight penis, even without surgery, let's do that. If we can do something that doesn't require something as involved as a penile prosthesis, but we can get the penis uh, functional with oral sildenafil or one of the other drugs, then let's do that. So let's do the intervention that achieves the goals that you want, hopefully the less harm possible. And you mentioned non-surgical. I mean, is traction device an option in these patients? Well, traction devices have been put out there as an option you know, for the, the armamentarium, if you will of pyronic disease, there's options that fit with non-surgical treatments uh, with biblical, easy way to say it, uh, or uncertain uh, success rates. Traction may be among that. Traction here is the idea of putting a device on the penis and stretching it and bending it using a device that may counter the, the angulation and may help restore some sort of penile straightness. This has been talked about for years and years and maybe other kinds of non-medical stretching devices out there too. Uh, and I'm very leery about these things that possibly can lead to other damage of the penis. I've had patients who use these stretching devices for hours and they've changed their penile sensation after uh, weeks and months of using this and some of it doesn't always restore uh, or recover. So I think we have to be just a little bit cautious about uh, some of these uh, options that uh, we really are uncertain about how successful they are. Attractions put out there, it may be successful in some men but it may be a very tedious and challenging 
a long-term kind of treatment to even try to administer. I had a patient, same situation, a young guy, I think the early 20s, and he then stopped having erections. He didn't feel the penis. I started on Cialis five milligrams daily. Eventually, he started having an erection, but he doesn't have any sensation there or, or his, his sensation is decreased. And he comes with the mother and they're always asking, hey, you need to fix it. Well, I don't know what to do. <laughs> That's why we have to be cautious about potentially extreme things. Uh, if a you know, person has been putting these traction bands on the penis attraction devices for hours, for months, it may actually cause some nerve stretching damage or induce kind of a new scarring effect with the penis. It may not even be reversible because we don't really have a therapy to restore sensation uh, in the genitals area, which is on have a therapy such as that. So if you do something that harmful, it may not be recoverable. So going back, so we talk about erectile dysfunction, we talk about premature ejaculation, we talk about peronis, testosterone, anything else in the realm of men's sexual health? Well, you know, I think that uh, there's a, a whole host of things uh, that uh, relate to having uh, sexual difficulties. And you know, in fact, my book that you talked about early in our conversation covers a lot of different things there from ejaculatory disturbances. And we touched on premature ejaculation earlier in our discussion. There's also delayed ejaculation. There's aspects of libido that we talked about. There's aspects of erection disorders. We talk about losing one's ability to achieve an erection called erectile dysfunction. But there's another phenomenon out there called priapism that I have also had a great deal of attention and focus and, and, and scientific intent to help correct over the years as well. This is a condition of a prolonged erection without sexual interest, and it can disproportionately affect certain individuals with health disorders like sickle cell disease. But it may happen to many men out there for reasons we don't fully understand. Now, it sounds like it's a disorder that's almost trivial and and almost like, well, that sounds like a good thing. You have an erection for a long period of time. Well, an erection that's longer than is desirable and painful after a while by lack of circulation. It can lead to penile tissue damage. And eventually, with repeated episodes, may damage the penis whereby natural erections really are lost. So this is a real disorder. The incidence of it may not be fully understood because I suspect a lot of men out there have this condition and just don't tell anybody about it. Uh, they get an erection that goes on not just upon awakening for five minutes in the morning from a nighttime sleep, if it goes on for an hour, two hours, even half a day or longer, a sort of condition that we see is called privacy. And for patients that have the recurrent or staggering uh, priapism, what, what are the options? You mentioned sickle cell patients. I, I see a, a fair amount of sickle cell patients. What are their options? In brief, that there's a management for an acute presentation of somebody's had a, a priapism for hours and we need to see them emergently and decompress the penis. So that's one form of management. For recurrent priapism, we're thinking more in the mode of what can be offered for a man who's going to predictably keep getting this and are there therapies that might be preventative. And so we're, we are still trying to define what those things are. Historically, men have been so well to do things like exercises or put some hot compresses or cold compresses or do other things. That be, well, none, none of those kind of home remedies really, really work. So we, we try to understand the science of this. We're developing therapies that we think may reprogram the penis, such as daily uh, sildenafil at low doses. That's been actually uh, scientifically well-established now, and uh, it may work in some men. Uh, there may be some newer therapies that are going to follow here as we understand the science of the disorder. 
Historically, we also used to use antiandrogens, that is blocking male testosterone. And I think we kind of wanted to move away from that, even though that shuts down erections, but it may have other adverse effects in the body too. So I think that this field is still ripe for further investigation and, and development of better therapies as we go forward. So you have dedicated your life to men's sexual health, and now you write the book, The Manhood Prescription, Every Man's Guide to Improving Sexual Health and Overall Wellness. How did that happen? I mean, w w why write a book? Well, I, I appreciate you're, you're talking about it and, and, and considering how it's uh, useful to, to men out there, because that's exactly uh, where the origin of the book came from. Just a sense that, uh, yes, I, I've dedicated much of my professional career to men's sexual health and their sense of well-being, and I wanted to produce a resource for men. Uh, yes, men can see me in clinics, but for those who can't see me, for the general public out there, here's a resource to become more informed about your sexual health, uh, what conditions may occur out there among all the ones we've talked about, and how to address these problems. So really, it's a matter here of, of thinking that I have you know, the knowledge and the experience and the background to produce a book that can be a resource for patients and individuals to, to access and learn more about these conditions and take action, take action to address them. Yeah, you definitely have covered many of the topics that we touched today. And definitely, it's not only a good book for patients, I would say also urologists or, or anyone in the field of sexual medicine. It is a great book. Well, it was meant to be written in such a way that could be useful to a, a regular non-medical audience, uh, but also for uh, healthcare professionals who want to be a bit more knowledgeable. They're not going to be experts, maybe as urologic surgeons or, or sexual health specialists, perhaps, uh, but there may be some information there that can help give them some guidance. Uh, so I recommend it for, for and not just this, as a high specialist, I don't, and it's not just for you know a very basic audience. It's going to be there for many individuals to access it and, and benefit from Nah, and it also, for example, will help me talk to patients. So you write it in a way that I can use the word that you use to explain something to the patient. I found that very, very good for me to incorporate into the practice. So, Bud, anything else you want to add? Well, okay, Jose, you've been a great host. I've enjoyed talking with you. I hope that this has been informative for the audience. You know, I, I can only echo what we've been talking about throughout this entire conversation that You know, that sexual health does not need to continue to be in the closet. It doesn't need to be in the shadows. Let's just be forthright about one's sexual health. Understand that it has impact on one's entire sense of well-being. It's connected to health conditions. And there are many ways uh, of having your sexual health impacted. But let's uh, not be ignorant about it. Let's, let's, let's bring it out in the open. Let's be informed. And let's address the problems. And let's make your life better. There you have it, folks. Dr. Arthur Burnett, thank you for being in Back Tables. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. 
with support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Day.